Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, we greet you once again for the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. We do this every weekend. On WTLN, that's AM 950 in Orlando. <clears throat> Always look forward to these visits. <clears throat> Jeff Senes is our engineer, and Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And in this first half hour, oh, we got a treat. Don Yoder is with us. She and Lisa Troyer have written a book called Real Women Leading with Proverbs 31 Values. Uh, John Maxwell wrote the foreword, and... Uh, We've got Dawn Yoder with us. Dawn, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Pat. I really appreciate it. Tell me how you and uh, Lisa came up with this idea and what uh, triggered you to plow into this topic. Well, actually, Lisa and I both do a lot of training on taking values into the workplace. That's something that we're part of through an organization called Global Priority. And so in doing that, we come against, you know, meet up a lot of women, a lot of different people that are looking for that practical application. And we thought, hey, let's dig into this and let's really look at, because, you know, Proverbs is the book of values. I mean, that's where we get a lot of our wisdom from. And so Proverbs 31 talks about wisdom for women. And so we thought, well, let's really dig into this and explore it and maybe give some practical tips to help people use this in their everyday life. Well, the book consists of 10 chapters, and uh, let's see how deeply we can get into this. Okay. All right, Don. Chapter one, the value of understanding people, including a thirsty woman, the woman at the well. Uh, What are you writing about in chapter one? Well, in chapter one, we're really talking about how understanding people affects the relationships in your life, regardless if that's at home or at work or in a ministry situation or anything, anywhere that you are, understanding people is going to affect the depth of the relationship, the trust in the relationship. And a lot of us have read Stephen Covey's book, The Speed of Trust. Well, if we don't have trust, we're losing a lot of time. And understanding people helps us gain that time back. And then in Chapter 2, we learn about the value of forgiveness including a fallen woman, the woman taken in adultery. Yeah. Yeah, forgiveness is so important. Um, Forgiveness is the difference between living somewhere in our past and moving on to the next thing in life. And when we get caught up in unforgiveness, it makes us bitter. It makes us uh, angry. And it leaves us unable to move on to what's new for us. So addressing unforgiveness is really important if we want to grow and develop and uh, see our potential flourish. And we do. We talked about the, the woman with adultery, and, and the main reason we talked about her is because of the forgiveness that she received and the understanding that she received. Third topic, the value of responsibility, including a take-charge woman. Named Martha, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Sometimes when people think about Mary and Martha, Martha kind of gets a bum rap, you know, because everyone thinks about, oh, Mary wanted to go sit at the feet of Jesus, and Mary was so relational, and and she 
she was. But we have to remember there's a lot of value in responsibility. The responsible people in the world are the ones who keep it moving. Those are the people who make sure things get done. They're the people that make sure people understand the boundaries. They're the people that make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed that keep us all out of trouble. And so we really explore that value of responsibility and what does it mean to be responsible and what are you responsible for. And, you know, even with Mary and Martha, there was that moment where where Jesus said to Martha, hey, it's all right, and this is the Dawn version, but hey, sit back, relax, you can be in my presence, it's okay. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to sit there forever and, you know, kumbaya, let's form a circle and never do anything. Responsible people get things done, and getting things done is important. And now we move to the fourth topic, the value of attitude, including a willing woman named Ruth. Yeah. Now, attitude is everything, right? I mean, that's where we have to start with everything. And um, what I love what Winston Churchill said about attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. I mean, it can totally change our life. And when we talked about, about Ruth, I mean, this was a woman with an attitude of uh, feeling like she was called to follow somebody and doing that regardless of the cost and regardless of what it was and having that attitude of expectation and hope wherever she went. Her life didn't look very good. Her husband died. Um, she didn't really have, she wasn't with her biological family. She was in a foreign land. And this was the attitude of, I, I can make it. I can do it. I will embrace positivity. There is a future for me. And there was a lot of blessing that came out of that. So attitude controls so much of our life. And the thing is, our circumstances cannot dictate our attitude. Our attitude has to be chosen by us regardless of our circumstances. We're all going to have times in life where the circumstances are less than what we would have wanted. Some of us, maybe more than others. But the difference between someone who overcomes and someone who sits in it is usually begins with their attitude. And so that's why attitude, we look at that, and then we look at how do we apply, you know, what can we do in our everyday life to choose that attitude? How do we discipline ourselves? How do we uh, be intentional about choosing the right attitude when, when we're met with a challenge? Fifth topic, the value of resolving conflict, including warring women, Udia and Syntac. <laughs> right. That's quite a couple names, right? Yes. And most people aren't even really aware of that story too much, but there's a place in Philippians, it's in chapter 4 actually, where Paul is addressing the Philippian church. And he brings up these two women, and it's just, it's two verses, but I just, it's so funny because he says, I'm pleading with these women, and I'm asking them to be in the same mind as the Lord, and I'm asking you, which would be the church there, Uh, my companions to help these women because they have contended at my side and in the cause of the gospel. So what he's saying is, hey, they're not getting along, and this is causing issues for all of us, and I need some people to step in and help them resolve these issues. Because if we don't resolve our issues of conflict, we cannot move forward. And we get caught up in things that are not important, and we miss the things that are important. And so when we talk about that value of resolving conflict, and and because especially since this book is geared toward women, although we all have conflict, and I think values are values. They apply to men, women, whomever. But women sometimes um, don't handle conflict very well. Uh, We either can get a little passive-aggressive about it, a little 
you know, snarky and, you know, saying little things here and there, making comments to everyone but the person we should, or we go into denial and try to pretend the conflict does not exist because nice girls don't have conflict. And the truth of the matter is that if we're living and breathing, we will have conflict, but we do not have to have a war. And so the, the decision has to be made to diffuse the conflict, to address the issues, to have an open mind, to be someone who is willing to compromise for someone who can approach a situation with humility, even if they're certain they're right. If you can be humble, you can go a long way. And so that chapter, Resolving Conflict, talks a lot also about humility and, and how to address someone. And, and no matter where you're at, what are the things you think about and what will help you resolve conflict in a timely and efficient manner. And now let's talk about the sixth topic, the value of restraint, including a judicious woman, Abigail. Fill us in on that. Okay. I love Abigail, so I probably will take a minute here. Abigail is, she's living out on this estate, and she's married to a guy named Nabal. And the word Nabal, his name just means fool. So basically, (laughs) we're being told that this is not a very smart fella that she's married to. And um, so what happens is David and his men, they're out, they're out in the wilderness, they're out running from Saul and his men, and, and he's got his band of guys. And while they're out there, some of the things that they do to kind of help them get food and provision is they'll protect the land for the people who own it. So David and his guys, they're keeping an eye on this land, making sure that nothing happens to Nabal's farms, his animals, his shepherds, his people. And I don't mean that kind of like the mob, like making sure nothing happens, meaning I don't do anything to you. Making sure that, you know, wild animals or thieves, that type of thing, don't come in and and steal from them. So they do this, and kind of the expectation is that then in return, you'll give our army, our, our guys, some provision as a thank you, because you appreciate our protection. So so this is what goes down, and, and David's men go to visit Nabal, which again means fool, and when they go see him, instead of being grateful and being thankful and, and appreciating, showing appreciation to David and his men, Nabal's like, hey, I didn't ask you to do this, and I'm not giving you nothing, so forget you. <laughs> and this does not go down well at all. So they go back to David, and they tell him what's going on, and, and so in David's book, this guy is toast. Him, all of his stuff... We're taking it all, and they're all dead. Now, word gets back to Abigail, who's Nabal's wife, of what happened and what her husband's response was. And she absolutely starts going insane. She's thinking, oh, my goodness, everyone on our state is at risk of death now. Hold, hold your thoughts, Don. we got to take a break. I want you to fill us in when we come back. I'm Pat Williams. It's WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. For men, it's all about testosterone. As you age, testosterone levels decline, along with performance, muscle strength, and energy. It shows up at the gym, but you see it most in the mirror. You see that older guy who's put on 20 pounds, lost a step, and lost more than a little muscle tone. She's already noticed. It's not your fault. You owe it to yourself to try a free one-month supply of Enzyte MRC, a male refueling complex to support healthy testosterone levels. Men everywhere depend on Enzyte MRC and how it makes them feel and look in the mirror. Welcome back. 
back, big guy. Bottom line, Enzyte MRC is for men who want to refuel that stronger, leaner, healthier, energetic, and masculine man they left behind. Feel the difference with a free 30-day trial of Enzyte MRC. All you pay is shipping. Act now and get a free sports bag with your free trial. Call 800-933-4004. 800-933-4004. 800-933-4004. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. Free trial requires via life enrollment with future shipments. Water is a basic building block of life. The human body is 70% water. It should be nourished with the purest, best water on Earth. At Carolina Mountain Water, their spring water is unsurpassed, clean, pure, wholesome, and refreshing. And for the past 25 years, Carolina Mountain Water has been serving and refreshing Central Florida with the best quality and best-tasting water at the most affordable price. Carolina Mountain Water is 100% mountain spring water, available in easy-to-use gallon and half-liter bottles, along with three- and five-gallon spill-proof bottles, perfect for home or office. And now they offer free home and office delivery. Isn't that simple? With Carolina Mountain Spring Water, no chemicals are ever needed for purification the way water for the body was meant to be. Get refreshed for the new year by calling 407-851-7144. The purest water Mother Nature can provide. Carolina Mountain Water, 407-851-7144. Call today for a special offer. 407-851-7144. Online at carolinabottledwater.com. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dawn Yoder is with us. Uh, she and Lisa Troyer have written Real Women Leading with Proverbs 31 Values. Uh, please fill us in. I, uh, you were talking about Abigail to us. Uh, right. Dawn, so, so Abigail fin- finds out about, about her husband's response. And she's you know, really freaking out. <laughs> and so she says, all right, look, I've got to save this household. And that includes her husband. So she wasn't harboring this, you know, resentment towards him or going to go tell him off or anything. She's just like, we've got to make this right. So she goes out herself with some of her servants, takes all these provisions to David and his men and says, please, I, I beg your forgiveness. Please have mercy on us. Um, please save the lives of this household. And really encourages and asks David to exercise restraint, which is what we're talking about. Because otherwise, um, she's saying, hey, if, if you do this, this is going to put you in the wrong, and God's not going to be able to bless you. So she used a lot of wisdom in how she approached it. Um, and she used restraint in how she said it. And she didn't go to him and say, you can't do this. This is wrong. It was, please, please forgive us. And it wasn't, my husband's an idiot or anything. It was just, hey, please forgive us, please. And so David says, hey, because... I, you know, you brought such wisdom to me, and I appreciate it, and, and I will forgive, and I will spare. Anyway, word got back to, to Nabal the fool, and, and he kind of croaked over because sort of, you know, basically there kind of leads us to believe he had some kind of a heart failure or something. And that left Abigail single, and, and then David ended up marrying Abigail. But all that comes down to using restraint, choosing the right words in the right time, and acting with wisdom and discernment can not only save you, but it can save those around you. Next topic. The value of honesty, including a woman of deception, Sapphira. Yeah, you know, sometimes these examples aren't all positive because Ananias and Sapphira, they chose to not be honest about something that really didn't matter except to their pride. It was, you know, we're going to sell our land and give it, give the money to the church. And, and they didn't give all their money, and they said they did, and, and that struck them down. 
And so the value in that honesty is just understanding, one, you know, be sure your sins will find you out. The truth will come out eventually. Uh, And so when it does, you have to think about, can I pay the consequence of not being honest? But what we go further to explore in honesty are the little things that trip us up. I mean, we might think, well, I'm not going to go to church and lie to my pastor, or I'm not going to go lie directly to God. But there are little things in our life that are a breach of trust. You know, if someone asks us, did you do something? It may be just a little thing, and you're thinking, oh, I was going to do that. I'll get it done in the next five minutes. So you just go ahead and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Well, that's a little, that's a little white lie, right? But that little dishonesty, when those things start coming out, it breaks trust. And so we really delve into those things about being honest with ourselves and being honest with our spouse, being honest with our family members and our friends and our coworkers, and what the benefits are from that. How do we see a growth in relationships because of that? How do we you know, take that speed because we've got that trust? And, and then what little things do we need to examine in our lives so we can get a little bit stronger there? One of the things about all these values is we talk about core values. I mean, core is one of those key words. You have to understand our core, like our physical core, that's what keeps us healthy, according to doctors. That's what keeps our, you know, if our core is strong, our body's strong, is what they say. Well, that takes work. It's not like doing 10 sit-ups a year keeps our core strong. It takes a daily focus at our value system. It takes a daily, you know, we've got to do our sit-ups every day, not just one day a year. Well, this is the same way. If we want to keep our core values strong, we have to be examining them regularly. We have to be looking at, where am I at with honesty today? What can I do to get better at it? And how do I make this application? A lot of this book is about application. At the end of every chapter, there's a section for application because knowledge is not power. Applied knowledge is power. So if we can apply the knowledge that we gain from it, we can grow. So honesty seems so basic, like, well, sure, everybody knows to be honest. But uh, when you really start looking at it, you start to see some chinks in your armor. Eighth topic, the value of planning including a woman of substance named Lydia. Yes. So Lydia was, she was a real entrepreneur of that time. I mean, she was someone who was, she was a a cloth maker. She was helping to fund the early church. This was a woman who had to be a good planner for, in order to have the extra to give, you have to plan ahead. If you're down to the penny every month, if you're down to the, I don't have any time left, and when an opportunity comes, you have nothing to give. So a big advantage of planning is so that you have something extra to give, if that's time, if it's finances, whatever that might be. Um, so we do go into that a little bit. Planning for me, that's my personal Achilles heel. That's a tough one for me. Um, so I, I really look at the, every chapter we have steps to follow. I really look at a lot of those steps on a regular basis because it takes discipline for me to plan. Some people are great planners, um, and it comes very naturally to them. It doesn't to me. Um, so I have to really look at that. Next topic, the value of generosity, including giving women the widow and Mary of Bethany. Yeah, generosity is um, a really interesting topic. When we talk about generosity, usually people think about money. They think about finances. And money is a big part of generosity. But generosity is also being willing to give of ourselves. It's being willing to give of our time and our abilities. It's being willing to give our encouragement It's really taking the focus off of ourselves and putting the focus on others. And so when we talk about the widow, I mean, that's kind of a real famous story from the Bible, the lady who brought all she had, you know, the widow's might. She brought what she had to offer for the offering, and it was worth more than people who gave a whole lot, but it was just a small portion of what they had because she gave it all. Um, 
And so that's a real famous story, and we think about, well, could I really give it all? And and maybe not today. Maybe today I can't really give it all because maybe I'm not there yet. But the thought is that if we focus on generosity and we make that part of our daily um, disciplines, or even if we just one week a year focus on generosity, we'll grow in that area and eventually you know, we will find ourselves being able to surrender more and more to others and finding the blessing that comes in that because there's tremendous blessing in generosity because, you know, we serve a generous God. So anyway, generosity is, um, again, one of those ones that when you meet generous people, they just, they pull you into their world. They're a magnet. And so helping us to become more generous just allows us to uh, grow in influence and um, our effect in the world around us. Don Yoder is our guest. We're talking about the book that she's co-authored, Real Women Leading with Proverbs 31 Values. And now the 10th topic, Don, the value of influence, including a woman of influence named Esther. Yeah, and I just kind of touched on if we're generous, we gain influence. I think all of these values, we gain influence as we implement into our life. But Esther, I mean, this was a woman who had the ear of the king and who went out on the, out on the edge to try and save her people. And um, I think that when we look at that influence, it was because of the combination of things. I mean, influence is a culmination of who we are. It's not one thing. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to chase after influence. Um, but influence is something that we can choose how we wield it. So meaning we all have influence somewhere. Now, you grow in influence by your character, by your values, by your investment in other people, by the way you add value to them. But we all have influence, if that's in our house or with a friend or in our business or wherever we're at, and then it's choosing to use our influence in the best possible way. We have to recognize we have it, but once we recognize it, now it's what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it for something that lasts, or are you going to use your influence for something that's momentary? And so it's really looking at those uh, thoughts of legacy and um, you know something living longer than you do. My guest is uh, Don Yoder. Uh, what, what's the conclusion to all this? What do we learn about women and leaders from the Bible, and how do we apply it to our own lives? What's the takeaway here? Well, the takeaway on this, first of all, is uh, the introduction we really break down the Proverbs 31 woman. And what we're looking for people to see is that our traditional view of that woman is that she was the homemaker. She was getting up early and making breakfast and sewing clothes, and she did. Those things are in the chapter. But also in the chapter are topics about buying and selling a field and knowing the right time to do that, about delegating work to servants, so managing people, about taking goods into the city and selling them as an entrepreneur. And all of those things, it said, brought honor to her husband and to her children. So she operated in a way that people could be proud that they were associated with her. Um, and that's what we're really looking at is it's not about all the activities of your life. Your activities may be different than mine, but it's about your motives, and it's about using every opportunity. And just for each person to realize that God is giving them everything they need to fulfill what their destiny is. And so many of us fall short of our destiny because we don't get to the point where we can really explore it because we let different values, different things in our life hang us up. But if we can get past those things, then we're ready to take on the bigger things. So the encouragement here is you have all you need through God to become who he wants you to become. Now let's just embrace it and let's be responsible to develop it because you can do it, you can be it, and you are it through him. 
How does a woman lead differently than a man? You know, I think that question is kind of funny. In general, I think maybe um, women can be a little more nurturing. But bottom line, in the sense that, you know, a lot of us are moms, and I've met nurturing guys, too, who are really good at, you know, encouraging people. I think the bottom line is we really have to strive to lead like Jesus led. You know, we have to um, think about other people more than we think about ourselves. We have to see the best in them and help them to develop that, add value to them, serve them. Um, our heart needs to, they need to feel our heart is for them. And I think that's more important than being male or female. It's, you know, how do we add value to and help other people to develop? How do we affect them? Tell me one other thing, and that is simply this. John Maxwell, and you uh, do some teaching for him. What does that mean? You're a member of his coaching team. Uh, explain that. How does it work? Sure. The John Maxwell coaching team is a group of people that have said, yes, John, we want to be tutored by you, basically. And so you, you join that team, and, and you're given a lot of teaching and opportunities to develop in those uh, your leadership giftings and just really taking that out to add value to other people. Some of the things that I've been able to do through that is um, been able to train people on these, these values, which has been a big part for me. I, I went with his team Equip last summer to Guatemala, and we worked with more than 14,000 people there on helping them to understand how can you meet every week and talk about just what this book talks about. Talk about these values, and you sit around, and you discuss it, and you figure out how to apply them into your life. And that's been a lot of what I've done um, with, with Dr. Maxwell's team. But the team is great because it's wherever you, you're at, any type of leadership role, you can embrace these things and put them into um, in, into work wherever you are. So th- he goes through like different ones of the books and, and really goes into a deep teaching so that you can go out and train other people on that. And that's what the team involves. But for me personally, a lot of the joy that I've had out of that is just being able to um, help other people embrace the values and see what difference they can make in their lives. You know, I love to hear the stories of how lives have turned around and situations and relationships have changed because they've been able to implement a particular value into their life. What is the Circle of Friends organization about? Well, Circle of Friends was founded by my co-author, Lisa Troyer, and um, she founded that like in the late 90s. And basically, to just sum it up, it's a ministry of women who are uh, working together to help each other. So we're working with connecting into doing radio, into doing uh, writing. We give writing opportunities, blogging opportunities, all different things like that. And... Um, so that's kind of our main thing. We do have a website. It's www.circleoffriends.fm, and we're really just looking to help give women a place to belong. And um, that's kind of what we've been doing for a lot of years. And we've done, like, community events and all kinds of different things like that. But really the bottom line is we want women to feel like they have a place to belong. And our our mission is to mentor and encourage women in leadership relationships and developing their potential. So whatever that looks like and however we can connect people to do that, we're a big proponent of accountability groups. We're a big proponent of um, getting involved in your community and just helping each other to become all that we can be. To one who has never been to Millersburg, Ohio, where you live, Uh uh, how would you describe it? It's amazing. I live in Amish country which is really incredible because you see values at work. (laughs) So 
Well, I mean, so let me give you a few examples. Um, this is a huge tourist area, which it's uh, Berlin, Ohio, which is like I, my, technically my address is Millersburg, but Berlin is kind of the main little drag close to me. And Berlin, Ohio is one of the largest Amish communities in the United States. And we pull in tourists from all over the world. And people come here for a couple of reasons. One, they want to see the Amish style of life. And, you know, we have a lot of good baked goods and nice wood crafting. But I think a big draw to the area is the values because you see the values at work. When values are at work in a community, let me give you a couple examples. One is we don't need city government. We don't have city government because people are self-governed. Don Yoder has been our guest. we got a, another segment right after this on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour, WTLA of 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 950 WTLN. If you miss the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace, Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at GraceImpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 950 WTLN. Hi, this is Pastor Johnny with The Vision, bringing you a message of love and grace on the new 950 WTLN. Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Or if you can't catch the broadcast at that time, you can get us at WTLN.com 24-7, where you can download the podcast anytime and enjoy that message. That's The Vision on the new 950 WTLN. We thought we were doing the right thing. I mean, why go out and hire professionals when we have people right here in the congregation who have yeah. experience in construction? That's right. I mean, Elder Jones was a carpenter for over 50 years. <laughs> but boy, were we wrong. You know, I thought I knew drywall. I thought I knew about plumbing. And we're supposed to know all the rules and regulations and permits and even the laws that are required to just renovate our own fellowship hall. Now we're really in hot water, too, with our local government. And we have to start all over again. Every day in Central Florida, well-meaning local churches run afoul of local government regulations for construction. The legal process for church construction projects is complex. Let the Nemo Group assist you with this complicated legal process. The Nemo Group is a Christian construction company. The Nemo Group specializes in church renovation and addition projects. The Nemo Group will help your congregation build a wall of protection that will ensure your renovation or add-on is safe, successful, and legal. Call 407-504-6966 or visit NemoGroup.com today. That's N-Y-M-O Group.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Times Network. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dawn Yoder, our guest in the first half hour, talking about her book, Real Women Leading. Uh, we go to the north of England, up in the Lake District. Uh, Colin Durier is with us, and we're going to talk about his brand new book, The A to Z of C.S. Lewis, an encyclopedia of his life, thought, and writings. Uh, Colin, I'm delighted you can join me. Uh, thanks so much. How you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thanks for uh, having me on your program to talk about one of my favorite authors. Uh, tell me where your interest in C.S. Lewis came from. Where, how did it start? 
it started when I was in um, in the final years of um, high school. We we had a general class and we were reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and and discussing it. And uh, that was my first um, knowledge of uh, of him. And uh, I was very attracted by his writing. And uh, and I decided that I would uh, read everything that he'd written because that's what I tended to do if I liked to write. And not knowing how many books he'd written, didn't know what I was letting myself in for. And I gradually um, found more and more of his books, including the Narnia Chronicles, mm. that passed me by as a child. Tell me about his life, first of all. How, how do you describe his life? Well, you could put it under two headings. You could say he was a scholar and a storyteller. Um, he, he was one of the most brilliant um, minds at Oxford University. His main area was English literature, particularly the medieval period. His life started in Northern Ireland, in the north of Ireland, actually, before partition. Uh, he grew up in a Protestant um, household. Um, he had a, 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 an older brother called Warney, who was very close to him. In fact, they were friends throughout their lives. Um, his father and mother were Albert and Florence, and um, his mother died when he was quite young of cancer. And uh, consequently, his father, Albert, sent him off to a boarding school in England a couple of weeks after his mother died or three weeks after his mother died. His older brother had already was already at that school and he had a terrible childhood. Um, how far do you want me to go? <laughs> uh, I want you to tell me about his family. Okay. And um, one of the features of his childhood was um, was growing up in the North of Ireland, which is a, a very beautiful country, and um, he would go for holidays with his mother and his brother um, to the north coast, the Antrim, mainly the Antrim coast. And it was there that he came across um, landscapes which actually helped, I think, to inspire the geography of um, Narnia. There's quite a lot of similarities between the geography of the north of Ireland and that of um, Narnia. And in fact, um, there's a ruined castle called um, Dunluce Castle, which I'm convinced is um, at least part of the inspiration for... Um, famous castle in the Narnia, Narnia stories, and he visited that a couple of times at least during his um, long summer holidays um, on the coast in Northern Ireland. Tell me about his friends. Well, he was rather an isolated um, uh, child. Um, he, he was very close to his brother, but his brother was sent off to boarding school, as I mentioned, so he was left on his own a lot, and um, he, he did a lot of reading and writing and Creating a man, started to create an imaginary world, which he called Boxham. Um, his friends were mainly, uh, in his early life, his, his cousins. It was only later in his teens that he became very friendly with um, a boy from just over the road to where he lived on the, on the outskirts of Belfast, uh, who was a little bit older than him, called Arthur Greaves. And they remained friends throughout Lewis's entire life. And... Um, you may not know, but there's three massive volumes of letters that have been published of C.S. Lewis's correspondence to various people. But many of a good proportion of those letters are written to Arthur over the years. And Arthur, although he was a bright, a bright person, he wasn't an intellectual. Um, uh, he, he was very interested in painting, and uh, and he's very strong on feelings. Where Lewis is very strong on ideas and thinking. But they, they, they shared a way of seeing the world, which was very important to both of them. And um, this friend Arthur was very important, too, because in writing the letters, 
Lewis was learning the skill of um, communicating um, to ordinary mortals rather than high-powered um, academics and dons that he later feature a lot in his life. Tell me about his marriage. Well, many of your listeners probably have seen the film Shadowlands, which um, which tells the story of his friendship and, and and then later marriage with Joy Davidman, who was a New York poet and novelist. And he, uh, I mentioned he married quite late in life. He, he uh, It's rather a complex story, but it goes back to the First World War when um, he, ha- he had a friend, a friend called Paddy Moore, and Paddy and he promised each other that if either of them were killed in war, they would look after their respective parent or parent, their parent. And um, in the case of Paddy, he, he died um, early on in 1918, um, and uh, Lewis took on the task, uh, took on what his, he, he fulfilled his promise he looked after Paddy's mother and um, and his his um, uh, young teen sister called Maureen, and this was something that was um, an obligation that stayed with him until her death um, many years later, about 1951 when she died. So um, he he lived the life of a of a bachelor in a household um, where he had this adoptive mother and um, and uh, and Maureen, her daughter later joined by, by his brother Warren. And it was only after Mrs. Moore's death that he was free to um, to even think about and marrying. Um, and this time he was well into his 50s. But um, Joy Davidman, back in New York, um, had become a Christian largely through reading Lewis's writings. Um, she, she was from uh, a Jewish background, and she was a fervent atheist um, before becoming a Christian. And uh, she decided to come over to England to get to, to get to know C.S. Lewis, or hoping to meet him at least. And that is what happened. And the, the friendship developed. And um, eventually, when when she was um, dying of cancer, C.S. Lewis married her um, in a, in a Christian marriage. Before that, he'd married her in a civil wedding to give her British citizenship for, say, uh, for her sake and also for the sake of her two sons who were with her, Douglas and David. And she had a reprieve from the um, from the cancer, which Lewis regarded as miraculous, uh, of several years, and they had deep happiness in those years of marriage, until finally the cancer returned in um, uh, the end of the 50s, and she died in, uh, in July 1960, leaving Lewis in deep grief. And as a result, he wrote a book called *A Grief Observed*, which is one of the one of the strongest books probably written on the experience of grief. Many people find it helpful, um, and people who counsel others um, uh, in bereavement have found the book useful too. How did he come around to write *Mere Christianity*, which which I would think, Colin, most Christians are familiar with of all his writings? Yes, it, it remains very popular to this day, um, and many people have cited Mere Christianity as a big influence <coughs> excuse me, in their conversion to Christian faith. It came about, um, it, again, it's quite a, a long story, but it goes back to the, to the 1930s when um, C.S. Lewis um, decided that he wasn't going to be a great poet, 
and, and turned his energies to, to writing um, more popular imaginative work and um, fiction, including a science fiction story called Out of the Silent Planet. And then in the, as, as, as wartime began, the Second World War, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, which was intended, he, was, he did this by invitation, and the idea was to write it for people who didn't have a church background and to put over Christian teaching about the whole issue of, of why there's suffering in the world and, and how, does, how, how, how does it square that God is all-powerful and loving, and yet there's so much suffering in the world. And these, these are the kind of questions that he tackled in The Problem of Pain. And the book was, was very much a success, and lots of people took note of it. Um, and one of the persons that read it uh, worked for the, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which had um, a huge task in the Second World War of providing information to British citizens and also um, trying to help um, those that were suffering the bombings by the Nazis and so on, and the grimness of war. And, um, and uh, he was looking for somebody to talk. Uh, he, he worked for the religious broadcasting section of the BBC, but he didn't want a theologian particularly. He wanted somebody who could communicate. And uh, here he found this um, literary don from Oxford University who had written this marvellous book on about the problem of pain. And he approached him about giving um, a series of broadcast talks for um, BBC. And uh, Lewis suggested the first series would be best as well, what we would call um, pre-evangelism or preparing the ground for uh, the gospel because there was reason that um, you couldn't assume that people had a knowledge of Christian faith as you could have done, say, in Victorian times. Um, you had to do a lot of work to prepare the ground so that people understood concepts of sin and the nature of God and many other aspects. So he started the broadcast talks um, with, um, um, with talking about the moral law, what he called the moral law, the sense that we have of right and wrong, which overrules our instincts for self-preservation and everything when we see somebody in need. And he pointed to lots of reasons why it was something objective, not just um, um, uh, cultural conditioning. My, my guest is Colin Durier. Uh, his new book is out, The A to Z of C.S. Lewis, an encyclopedia of his life, thought, and writings. Uh, tell me about the screw tape letters. The screw tape letters were written around the same time as the broadcast talks and not long after the problem of pain. Um, Lewis was continuing to work at communicating Christian faith in a way that um, a, uh, in a way that ordinary people could understand uh, and appreciate. And um, what, I, I can't remember exactly when he got the idea, but he was he was sitting in church one day. I think it was um, it, it was in um, sometime in 1940, when when the, things looked very very bleak for 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 Britain, uh, with the threat of invasion from Germany. But he suddenly got the idea of um, writing a book about uh, of a correspondence between a senior devil and a junior devil. The senior devil would be giving advice to the to the untried junior devil in how to um, how, how to um, um, tempt and um, and lead uh, a soul to damnation. And he was given charge, um, the, the younger devil was called Wormwood, and he'd be given charge of a, a young man who lived in a probably a small town or 
We don't really know much about the town because Lewis doesn't tell us, but it was big enough to be a target for German bombing anyway. And um, soon after Wormwood is assigned um, this, this person whose name we never learn, um, he becomes a Christian. So this makes um, Wormwood's task much more difficult. He, he's now got the, the, the job of reclaiming um, this person from the clutches of what, who he calls the enemy, um, which, is, um, which is, of course, um, God himself. And um, Screwtape gives him lots of advice on, on the, the weaknesses of human beings and the kind of things which um, play into demonic hands in, in getting them safely into the clutches of a, pers a person he calls our father below. And um, one of the interesting things about um, the, the, the letters, Screwtape letters, is that um, Lewis came up with a, a different way of picturing hell. There's lots of traditional imagery coming from John Milton's Paradise Lost and um, Dante's The Divine Comedy and lots of other writings. But he, he wanted to couch the whole situation in modern terms, so he based hell upon a bureaucratic system, a cross between a, a bureaucratic system and, um, and an unscrupulous um um, large company, um, business company, and um, so um, people in in hell would um, have smart suits and um, clean fingernails and so on, but they would be um, working away at um, at devilry and um, and making sure that um, people were um, tempted away from the path to heaven. Colin Durier is our guest. We've got another segment with him talking about his new book, The A to Z of C.S. Lewis. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on WTLN. That's AM 950 in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Water is a basic building block of life. The human body is 70% water. It should be nourished with the purest, best water on Earth. At Carolina Mountain Water, their spring water is unsurpassed, clean, pure, wholesome, and refreshing. And for the past 25 years, Carolina Mountain Water has been serving and refreshing Central Florida with the best quality and best-tasting water at the most affordable price. Carolina Mountain Water is 100% mountain spring water, available in easy-to-use gallon and half-liter bottles, along with three- and five-gallon spill-proof bottles, perfect for home or office. And now they offer free home and office delivery. Isn't that simple? With Carolina Mountain Spring Water, no chemicals are ever needed for purification the way water for the body was meant to be. Get refreshed for the new year by calling 407-851-7144. The purest water Mother Nature can provide. Carolina Mountain Water, 407-851-7144. Call today for a special offer. 407-851-7144. Online at carolinabottledwater.com. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your hosts, Dr. Daniel Forbes and Dr. John Brooks. Families by Designs airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 950 WTLN. Look, kid, when guys like us walk into a facility in the morning... We can smell a problem. No one needs to hand us a work order. We already know it. Today, for instance, we need a new gearbox, six globe valves, and a dozen ballasts. And when I smell a problem, Granger smells that I smell a problem. They help me keep this place up and running. Now that's the kind of smell I like. The sweet smell of success. Get it? Got it? 
Good. Call clickgranger.com or stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Colin Durier is with us from uh, the northern part of England, up in the Lake Country. And we're talking about his book, The A to Z of C.S. Lewis. Tell me about the relationship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, if you would, please, Colin. Yes, the the, the friendship between um, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien was one of the most important elements of uh, Lewis's life. They they met in the 1920s when both had started um, teaching at Oxford University. Um, Tolkien had a much more senior rank. He was a professor, that is, he, he was the chair, one of the chairs of the Department of English, whereas um, C.S. Lewis was was a, a don, um, a tutor, um, whose job was to was to 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 have um, tutorial sessions with uh, undergraduates and to give lectures in the university. Um, and um, anyway, the two met at an English meeting after a few months of, of both of them being at Oxford University. And at the first meeting, they weren't particularly impressed with each other. But C.S. Lewis soon found out that um, that Tolkien had a hobby. And this hobby, part of the hobby, was to create invented languages and to work away uh, to making an imaginary world with all kinds of um, stories going on it, which we now know as um, the stories which led eventually to the writing of The Lord of the Rings. At this time, C.S. Lewis was, um, was very much an atheist. He'd been an atheist since his early teens. And uh, Tolkien was a devout Roman Catholic and um, naturally was interested in um, um, trying to persuade his friends to, to see a, a much wider view of reality in which um, you know, God is behind the universe and so on and, um, and to feel the, the wonder of Christian teaching, teaching of grace and everything. Um, and this was a, a very long-term um, process. Most of all, um, they were friends, and they, they, they had much in common. They shared a love of um, Old Norse mythology and folklore and, um, and great literature of the, the medieval period, which was their academic area. And um, as time went on, um, the, the conversations deepened, and Tolkien would le- lend Lewis some of his... Um, his stories to read, and, and C.S. Lewis would share his own writings with Tolkien. So the friendship deepened. There came a point when, when C.S. Lewis re- uh, realized the, the, the um, emptiness of his uh, atheism and turned to a belief in some kind of God. At that time, it was an unknown God. He didn't, um, he didn't know much about this person behind the universe, but he, he decided to follow the... Um, main track of Western civilization that um, he, he was so familiar with in, through his literature, and, um, and, and think, think at least about um, Christianity. And there came a point when Tolkien and another friend who was a Christian um, persuaded Lewis of the, um, his, his imaginative limitations in, in that he enjoyed reading myths, Old Norse myths and Celtic legends and so on. But when it came to um, um, the, uh, the, the accounts of Christ in the Gospels, um, they, um, Tolkien said, well, they had all the qualities of, um, 
of great myth, but at the same time, um, they actually happened in real history. And he said to Lewis that he hadn't actually, um, he wasn't actually responding to the uh, to the depth of the meaning of the of the events of the life. Um, and what happened is that Lewis suddenly realised that um, this was so, and um, and his all the all the things that had interested him and given him longing um, for, for more to life over the years um, fitted into one pattern, which included his thinking and his imagination. And uh, within days of that, um, um, he actually became a Christian in the sense that he, he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And from that, it led on to his deepening of, um, of faith. So the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien was very, very important, um, simply for the fact that, um, that that Tolkien was one of the main instruments in his becoming a Christian. But also on a deeper level, um, Tolkien had uh, Lewis had a big impact on Tolkien too in encouraging him. And it's true to say, I think, that without that friendship, we would neither have had the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. And... Um, I, I'm, sometimes I imagine what the world would be like if um, if we had neither Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, and I I thank God for the um, that meeting that took place between Lewis and Tolkien, and how it developed into friendship, and how it actually um, had an impact around the globe in the in the love that people have in so many different countries and ethnic backgrounds um, for um, for the stories that the two men wrote. Colin, what do you think are some of the qualities or characteristics of Lewis's writing uh, that have made his book so popular? Well, if we go back to um, his early ambition to be a great poet, he actually did write some, some, some very good poetry, but it tended to be good in a rather technical sense. Um, it didn't really have a strong life very often as poetry, but he, but he had an amazing poetic gift. And it was when he turned to writing prose that um, his, poet, his poetic nature really um, was captured in words. And um, you have, even in his more prosaic books like Mere Christianity, you have a marvelous balance between very lucid, abstract thinking in presenting um, propositions and statements and so on about Christian faith, combined with wonderful illustrations and analogies and mini-parables and metaphors which back up and make concrete and definite those ideas. And I think that's part of the attraction um, with something as simple as the broadcast talks in mere Christianity. But in his fiction as well, if you take um, his science fiction stories, the middle one is called Perilandra, or Voyage to Venus, and it gives a beautiful picture of, a, of, a, of an un, an un fallen planet, which is very like heaven itself in the reality of the harmony between, say, animal life and, and human life. And uh, the book is written in a, in a style that is very, very poetic, so much so that so one of um, a leading poet in, um, in this country called Ruth Pitter, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis's, asked, asked him if she could turn some, some of the sections of the, the book into poetic stanzas, which she did. Um, it's rather like the way that um, William Wordsworth was able to turn passages from his sister Dorothy's journals into poetry. For example, the poem The Daffodils, which everybody has, I think, um, learns at, um, at high school. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, uh, 
powerful intellect and deep imagination in an, that uh, integrated into each other through, um, particularly through his conversion to Christ. Um, that um, that is the secret of the power of his writing. Even when you re- read his very scholarly literary works, uh, they're, they're beautifully written and they're nourishing to read. They're not just dry and abstract. Colin, who were the Inklings? The Inklings are a group of um, friends. They were initially a group of C.S. Lewis friends, um, and uh, they they actually became important after Lewis's conversion in terms of becoming the group that we now know as Inklings, which was a group of people that were interested in writing but also had a Christian faith of some sort or other. And um, what seems to have happened is that um, after Lewis's conversion, um, he, he became very much aware of how many of his friends were Christians and how much they'd helped him. And he wanted to um, he wanted to carry on um, in the in the fellowship of, of, of such a group of writers. And the the group included um, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, somebody called Hugo Dyson, who was the third person in the important conversation that Lewis had with Tolkien about Christian faith. Um, and there was, uh, there was a theologian called Adam Fox and literary figures like um, um, uh, Dave, Lord David Cecil, who, who had connections with the Bloomsbury Group, which was uh, another important literary group. And um, the, uh, another key figure was Charles Williams, who was a lay, something of a lay theologian, um, a poet and um, um, and, and writer on literary matters, and also writing books such as The Forgiveness of Sins, and a book called The Descent of the Dove, which was a kind of a history of the Holy Spirit in the Church. Colin Durier has been our guest. We've got to wrap up right after this. It's the Pat Williams Weekend Power, WTLN AM 950. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandek, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. Now, here's something you don't hear on the radio every day. Someone who can't see. I am totally blind. So I go through periods when I'm unable to sleep at night. And I feel like I'm constantly running. I can never quite catch up. But this isn't a sleep problem. It's something called non-24-hour disorder. Learn more about non-24 by calling 855-856-2424 or visiting learnmorenon24.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. Dawn Yoder, our guest in that first half hour, uh, talking about her book, Real Women Leading. And then we went to Great Britain, where Colin Durier was with us, and... uh, uh, he filled us in on his book, The A to Z of C.S. Lewis, an encyclopedia of his life, 
thought and writings. Please visit my website. It is patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And please check out my most recent book. It's called Coach Wooden's Greatest Secret. Uh, you'll enjoy it yeah, here, particularly as March Madness begins to start raging across America. And uh, in the meantime, uh, have a wonderful day tomorrow with your family at church and a great week ahead here in Central Florida with this beautiful weather. And we're back next weekend for more. I'm Pat Williams. It's WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 950 WTLN.